The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This intro is pretty self-explanatory. This is part two with John McRae. More on the story of Silicon Graphics. More on doing battle with Microsoft in the 90s. More on John's career and, in the end, some really deep and insightful thoughts on virtual reality. I hope you enjoy... Thanks again to John for being willing to come back and take a second bite of the apple, as it were. John McRae, thanks for coming back to the Internet History Podcast. My pleasure. Well, I, uh, I think we need, to, we need to catch up where we left off. As I remember it, you had been knighted. You had also just got funding... Remind us what the funding is for, what the project is for, and what you're about to start doing. Yes, so we're at uh, Silicon Graphics, the hottest company in the Valley. Well, Netscape has just overtaken it in heat. But uh, I had pitched uh, that we ought to jump into the web market with authoring software and web servers. And uh, Tom Jermalik, the COO, had just awarded me $2.5 million dollars in exchange for me and my low-end division agreeing to increase our revenue outlook for Q1 and Q2 of calendar 1995 by $15 million. I'm going to jump in already because it occurred to me something that I wanted to to do last time is the vision here is uh, the creation vision, and it's it's if the web is taking off, you want to make it easier for people to create their own websites, and you want to do it in, I guess maybe the, the template is the what you see is what you get, sort of what you can do with Adobe or even or even um, word processors, you know, where, where what you type on the yes. screen is, is the thing you can print. Is that the vision that, that um, is making this project go forward? That, that's part of it, uh, and it reflects my background as an artist, but it's also the case that Silicon Graphics is the visual computing company. And one of the big things we're saying is, look, the Internet's been around for 30 years. Why is it taking off now? It's because the web is visual. And so we're we're pushing hard on the idea that the web is going to be this in, incredibly rich multimedia 
new medium, kind of leapfrogging the CD-ROM stuff. And, and I want Silicon Graphics to be at the center of that is this exciting new place or medium for authoring content because in part we've been locked out of the CD-ROM authoring space because Director didn't run on IRIX. I guess maybe what I'm asking also is, are you um, envisioning the hardcore developer market or are you envisioning um, uh, a, a more democratic market? Anyone can make a web page. Ironically, while we were trying to sell more, uh, you know, 5,000 and up uh, high-end workstations for this, I was also looking to democratize it in the sense of making it accessible to uh, creatives, not just to programmers. L later uh, in the story, uh, Java will emerge and we'll end up becoming, we'll end up shipping uh, an IDE for Java before Sun does, and we become the first licensee of Java. So we eventually get the developer story as well, but it's more through the Java side of things. All right. Well, uh, enough of me interrupting. Uh, you've got your, uh, I think it was two and a half million. Um, and so let, let, let's go. How does, how does this project get rolling? Well, yeah, so there's a, there's interesting things that I didn't know at the time. Uh, we had a compelling vision or I had a compelling vision and a really great presentation, but there's an awful lot of luck that's involved that I didn't know at the time. And it's just, I think useful to hear this. Um, one of the things is uh, TJ, Tom Jermalik, had an unknown slush fund sitting around that was two and a half million dollars in size, just waiting for the right audacious idea to come forward. And that's why when I asked for three million, he countered with two and a half. Um, it's also the case that the folks who entered the room right after I exited were uh, presenting a bold, audacious idea for a project to move the company much more boldly in the CAD computer-aided design space. And when they asked, TJ had already emptied his slush fund for what would become WebForce. Uh, the other interesting little thing uh, I learned immediately after the meeting, Tom Furlong, our GM, came up to me and said, uh, your timing's incredible. Uh, while you were waiting in the hallway, we had the international sales call and we had country managers from all over the world piling on with this notion that um, in all of these accounts that are like 100 percent silicon graphics for their workstations, uh, all of a sudden they're seeing our uh, direct uh, rival, Sun Microsystems, is encroaching into the accounts and getting a toehold with a product called Netra, which was a box for some internet LAN WAN kind of stuff. Um, and so they're all basically saying, TJ, what are we going to do about this thing called the internet and the web? And so it really set a perfect context for my pitch. So there's that backstory that I thought you sh I should share. But uh, next up I'd say is- um, Yeah, go ahead. It really, right after, realizing that I've gotten the funding, there's a bit of an oh shit moment where I realized the timeline that I've committed to is really quite ridiculous. Um, essentially saying, 
you know, it's November now, and we're going to launch this new product line that we haven't started work on by the end of January. And we don't have a team dedicated to this. And we've got Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's coming. That's like the worst time to try and pull off an audacious um, new product line. So uh, there's that. And you need to you need to get a team together. You need <laughs> you need to actually yeah. get some boots on the ground. Yeah. So you know, immediately start um, hiring, and that always takes longer than you'd like it to. But um, within weeks, um, we went from just me to, of course, at pretty early on, the server division, product, and marketing guys are on board. Um, the uh, the software division that's uh, makes the uh, the GUI and desktop tools is conceptually on. So start to get people in other divisions who are on the project, and I start building out a little team. And before you know, it, we've got four or five people uh, on 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 the team in the low end division. But the really uh, kind of scary things from a schedule perspective are um, really kind of three things. One. Uh, we've got to get a, a an OEM deal with Netscape. Two. Why? Why do you have to? Uh, well, the whole idea here is to create a solution bundle, and mm. so they they're the first to market with a commercial web server product, and that's the obvious thing. Like, if you're going to go to market and say, "Here's a product line for web serving," there's only one game in town at that point, and it's. Uh, the company that's in the process of becoming Netscape. Um, the other thing we really need in that bundled approach, and especially from the perspective of the low-end workstation division, is we need an HTML editor. I've got a backup plan, which is I can get SoftQuad's Hot Metal Pro, port it in exchange for some hardware, but we have a bolder idea, which is let's get our own HTML editor. So we've got... Um, the Netscape story, the uh, HTML editor story, and then a third one, which is we want to go out guns a-blazing, and that means uh, print ads. Um, but print ads uh, take a long time. There's a long lead. Mm -hmm. So if you want to mm -hmm. be in Wired Magazine right. in January of 95, you got to make that purchase probably in November, and you got, got to deliver creative sometime in probably early December. I forget the actual timing. And I, I, I've, this has been pointed out by many people many times before, but there's not the ecosystem that we think of today where there's you know a whole blogosphere, there's TechCrunch that'll cover you, there's you know a, a BuzzFeed that'll cover you, your new product launch and things like that. Like that's sort of that's sort of fanboy, uh, geek, nerdy tech infrastructure of of tech journalism, uh, really kind of isn't there. Right. Yeah. So you've got basically you've got Wired, which is pretty uh, cutting edge uh, and cool. Um, you've got traditional computer industry rags like Computer World, um, but there also had emerged two. I think they were weekly. Uh, print publications that were one was called Interactive Week, and I think the other one might have been Interactive Age. Um, 
And they were on a weekly basis. So there was a little more flexibility there, not quite the same speed as a blog, but they were like places that you wanted, uh, that I wanted us to own the mind share. Because the idea here is we're launching uh, the very first product line that has, uh, that, that's for the web other than Netscape's server and browser. So maybe we should just go through those. Yeah, uh, sure. each, one, each one has its own interesting challenges. Um, well, you know what, let's, let's start with Netscape because I'm curious, uh, when Rob, Rob Reed was on the show, he, he, we got into that little tangent about how Netscape sort of gets arrogant with their success. Yes. So, and, and, yeah, how, yeah, how did the Netscape deal work out for you? Well, I, I should also give a little bit more context. One piece I didn't tell of the pitch to TJ story is at the very end, after he had already blessed this, he put a kind of an asterisk on it. He said, one more thing. When you cut the deal with Netscape, I want you to work with, and I forget the gentleman's name, but he was the chief counsel for Silicon Graphics. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know why, but it turns out um, there was already a rising friction between the two companies over poaching. And it wasn't just happening at the individual contributor in engineering level. What I didn't know until uh, a few years ago is that just a few months before this meeting, Jim Clark had come back and tried to poach TJ to hire him as the CEO of what would become Netscape. Mm -hmm. And TJ had turned down a four-year compensation plan worth uh, at least $10 million. Um, but he was very well aware, much more aware than I knew at the time of the significance of uh, Netscape and the, the market they was going after and all of that. So ultimately, one of the challenges we needed to get a non or a non-solicit clause into the OEM agreement that we were going to work on. All right, a couple things. One, at the time this was happening, if you looked at the top trafficked websites, um, it re reflected a very different uh, world. Some of the t most popular websites were the one for Sun Microsystems and the one for Silicon Graphics. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so, the team behind the Silicon Graphics website was already negotiating with Netscape around an OEM deal to bundle um, the Netscape browser on all of our workstations. The idea being that we wanted to be a web forward company and make sure that all of our customers could easily access directly from us anything we wanted them to know. That deal got rolled into the one I was trying to negotiate. And what I was trying to do is say, hey, the Netscape server software, which if I recall was list priced at $1,500 per seat at the time, you know, I was trying to get it as low as I could so that we could make the product line um, profitable. Um, but uh, to your point earlier about um, they were at times a difficult company to work with because they were so successful. The sales rep that I happened to get by luck of the draw was very definitely um, not keen on uh, discounting in any way. And the pricing was so 
um, off base that I felt like there was a chance we wouldn't be able to consummate a deal in mm. the time frame. What ended up working out super well for me, and this is a, you know a, the, the the luck involved in these things. Turns out that the first non-engineer in Netscape was a guy named Greg Sands. Mm-hmm. And, and he actually worked on the original business plan as a student at Stanford Business School. He's the guy who, when Mosaic, uh, when they were su- and getting a threat of a lawsuit from NCSA and they had to change their name, he came up with the name Netscape. But he's also one year after me at Stanford Business School, a buddy of mine and someone who had taught me how to uh, play rollerblade hockey. Uh, so I reached out to Greg. We met for coffee. Um, and he said, you know what, I'm going to help you out here. We'll figure it out. And all of a sudden, much more reasonable terms were put forward and we were able to close the deal within weeks. Well, that's uh, fortunate because, as you said, I guess there was basically no other option at that point. <laughs> you kind of needed that deal. Exactly. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the, the Netscape side of it. We'll come back to them a bit as we get close to launch because, you know, internally, both internal to my head and internal to my discussions in Silicon Graphics, one of the more interesting uh, proof points here of why we should win in this market is the hottest company, Netscape, is doing all of their development, at least uh, much of their development, and uh, and all of their serving on the indie workstation. And that's a fact that I very definitely wanted to leverage in marketing. Um, I guess I'm telling the story now. When we get really close to launch, mm-hmm. um, Roseanne Sino, uh, who's been on your show, who had been head of PR at Silicon Graphics and then became head of PR at Netscape. Um, and uh, I, I love Ro- Roseanne and, uh, you know, we, we have a great working relationship. But to my surprise, she said, you know what, really not comfortable with you guys talking about us using Silicon Graphics hardware. I went, how, how really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seemed like a very natural story, especially given that Jim Clark was founder of both companies. Um, and I don't know how much of it is logical business interest, as in they want it to be seen as fair to all of their OEM partners, and how much of it is that there's actually genuine bad blood between Jim and Silicon Graphics having left. Uh, on, you know, somewhat awkward terms. Uh, you know, at the time, uh, the, the CEO of Silicon Graphics was Ed McCracken. And, you know, he was never referred to by that name over at Netscape. Mm-hmm. He was always called Ed McMuffin. So um, incredibly important partnership, but a bit fraught with some complexity. So, um, so what are the other pieces that have to come together before it, like you launch, I think in like, uh, just 76 days with the, with the product, right? Yeah. It's 76 days between, uh, granting, a, a, a green light and two and a half million dollars and launching on the 26th of January, 1995. So what, so, are, what are the other pieces that, that need to fall into place there? As, as folks who might remember, uh, we ended up using a tagline uh, to author and to serve. So the 
two key pieces are the server from Netscape and the authoring tools. On the authoring tool side, uh, it would appear to be an impossible mission uh, that Wei Ting, head of the uh, visual magic division that does the desktop and the, uh, the, the tools and the GUI, um, he says, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's go out there and, and make this happen. And all of a sudden, he's taking me out to various trips around Silicon Valley to places, most surprising places where there are folks who have made an HTML editor that is WYSIWYG um, and in some varying degree uh, ready to be potentially a flagship product on IRX, our version of Unix. The first one we go visit is a company called EIT. Um, and it turns out, ironically, I learned later that that's the company right. that hired Mark Andreessen. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Enterprise something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. That was his job that he got when he left uh, NCSA um, and before starting uh, Netscape. Yeah. Downtown Palo Alto, right by the Caltrain station. Um, uh, and anyway, uh, the they showed us a on an indie workstation, an HTML editor that was in fact WYSIWYG and integrated into the uh, desktop environment in such a way that you could drag and drop uh, photos into it in line and it all worked. It was just beautiful. The CEO is a guy named Marty Tenenbaum. Um, and so it looked like we might have it, but then Wei Ting asked, uh, what is this written in? And uh, Marty replied, Winterp. And the look on Wei's face was uh, pretty pretty obviously disappointed. I had never heard of Winterp. I don't know that I have. <laughs> yeah, it turns out no one had because it was a language that EIT had developed. So it was a complete non-starter. We're not, we're not gonna we're not gonna buy a code base in a language that we don't know. And so uh, uh, we kept looking. And then I think about a week later, uh, Wei came to me and said, uh, okay, uh, are you available to head out this evening? I've, uh, <laughs> we're going, we're going to Amdahl or Amdahl. And I'm like, what? Now, if the stories I'm telling right now are old time Silicon Valley stories by this point in time in December of 1994, Amdahl is an ancient story. It's a dinosaur. <laughs> um, Amdahl made um, mainframes that were IBM compatible. Mm. So, so the idea that we would be buying some cutting edge software from them is a bit absurd on its face. But when we went, we met with this one developer and I, a business development guy, and the developer was just a contractor. His name is David Koblis. And he had uh, developed a an, a fairly reasonable WYSIWYG HTML editor in C++. And all of a sudden, within days, we had um, we had done a licensing deal and brought David over and a team was formed. And I think they had something like eight or nine weeks to get from fairly buggy, unfinished code uh, to shippable product. And the folks that worked on it, they worked, you know, maybe an interesting uh, kind of sidebar here, because in our last discussion, we talked a little bit about how 
Silicon Valley was kind of um, a bit sluggish mm-hmm. at that period of time. Uh, and within a short period of time, we would be we would be using a new phrase, which was uh, Netscape time. Right. Because what Netscape did as the new hottest company in the valley is they stepped on the gas so hard in a way that no one's ever seen on, uh, before that time. And they were taking on Microsoft and they were doing it with a product that ran on every OS and they were shipping at a much faster rate. And I didn't realize until I was writing some notes for this call that that's what we did as well. The WebForce project really was one of stepping on the gas and running at the pace because we all felt like the world is changing and we got to run super fast to get our piece of it. Um, But what's interesting too is once we had a code base that we would uh, turn into web magic for the launch, the team uh, decided to embrace an even more audacious goal than uh, a WYSIWYG HTML editor that was integrated into our environment. They decided they wanted to do full render compatibility with Netscape Navigator. And what that meant was aiming at a moving target because Netscape was moving at breakneck speed. And so, you know, they popped new features out and our team would figure out how to do that on the authoring side. Well, there's a lot of that's also the time period um, when, you know, uh, HTML as a standard is so new that they're they're throwing new things up. You know, like I've talked to people about like, yeah, man, when we could get the center tag or when we could do uh, tables and, and things like that. So like you're still in the period where, um, yeah, all of a sudden yeah. some, somebody's starting to do something new that like can completely change the way the web even looks. And so you, you, you'd look like old hat if you weren't uh, up to date, up to the second. Right. And what we want to present to the marketplace, we want it to look like the tightest possible partnership between us and Netscape on all things server and uh, authoring. And and I think the code that David brought with him didn't yet support things that were really coming out the pipe at the time, like tables and forms and even the much loved blink tag. Right. Well, and, and SSL too, which you know is going to be important for you know uh, allowing e-commerce to to happen soon. Yes. So those are the kind of short versions of the stories around the server and the authoring software. Um, the third thing I mentioned is we needed to have all this marketing stuff that you know, advertising collateral needs to all be ready to roll this out to the world and to the. Silicon Graphics um, worldwide sales force. And, and the starting point for all that, given the long leads, among other things, we've got to come up with a name. Because when I pitched it to TJ, I was like codenamed Spider. Um, and so I've got, I've got this thing I had drawn out, um, almost like a Gantt chart of like, what are all the things that need to happen by when? And one of them was, you know, finalize the name. And I was trying all sorts of different things. The main one of the main drivers that would lead to web forces at that moment in time, there weren't any products, software or hardware that had web in the name. 
And at the time, um, you know, part of what was going on is you've got um, Gopher and Waze and FTP and HTML and you got just it's a soup of things. And and there were some of us who saw the web would subsume everything and others who were still trying to figure out whether that might happen. And so one morning in the shower, it was just like, boom, web force. And I think within minutes it was like, and the tagline too, to author and to serve. Um, and that freed us up to do every other thing from making a, a really powerful video that explained all this um, to... Uh, Which remind me, uh, when I post this, even if I forget initially, I can include in the show notes, you have a, a YouTube video. Oh, that's right. I did. I did get yeah. that digitized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it turns out, of course, you know, one of the challenges I never thought about is we've got this thousand person um, sales force around the world that are some of the best uh, hardware sales folks. Um, but they tend to have a real fluency in talking about 3D graphics, talking about performance of hardware. Um, Selling the web is completely new. Uh, web serving and web authoring are not actually in our wheelhouse. Um, Sun at least has the advantage of having uh, had the um, organizing principle that the network is the computer. They've very much about networking from the beginning. Um, so it turns out this video that uh, that we make ends up being the sales model, as in uh, people would sales guys around the world would tell me, oh yeah, we bring people in and we just stick the tape in and, and, and they watch you talk about the web for, you know, 20 minutes. Um, so we had a bunch of those things. We came out, uh, guns a blazing with some incredible ads, um, done by a firm called Poppy Tyson. Um, one, uh, was one stop web shop. Another one, we didn't just bet on the, the, um, the web is a new medium. We also saw it as uh, a new style of commerce. So the day of the launch, uh, there was a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal that shows a web force indie workstation and a uh, big, bold uh, type. It says introducing the biggest revolution in commerce since the 800 number. And it's all about the web. Mm -hmm. And that's still it's still a time period where your uh, companies are having to be educated into. OK, so if, if we put up a website, how does that help us? Exactly. So that it really is the it's kind of a evangelical educational sale um, as people. Um, there ends up being this kind of. Uh, frenzy as more and more pe people businesses and people realize i've got to be on the web and so as we talked about last time this is a picks and shovels opportunity around this this kind of massive um sea change all right so uh, just to reframe it so web force is a software bundle you've got the web magic which is the html editor in there um there's other things in there too, like there's a, a a video tool, an audio tool, all sorts of things, right? Yeah, so we little things like um, MPEG, I think it's MPEG one at that point, um, 
we needed to you know, license an MPEG codec to be able to deal with that. Um, uh, we had Rob Lewis as the product manager and uh, Dave Simowitz uh, as technical guy. And these guys were like looking at all the things that would be needed to make a, a complete solution for uh, for web authoring and serving. Um, and as we were getting close to launch, um, I got a little surprise gift uh, along those lines of things that you might want to include to be comprehensive, um, which is to say, um, and I'm going to pause for, can I pause for a sec? Sure, sure, sure. Um, make a note of the time. Hold on. Just... Yeah, go ahead. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, do you want to do a three, two, one, or just go? Uh, give me one second. I'm going to note real quick. Where are we? 36, 20. Um, sure. Three, two, one. As we were getting close to launch, I got a gift that I wasn't expecting. Um, a guy I hadn't met yet, Rick Carey, who was working on, um, interactive 3d authoring stuff, um, uh, in the web magic division or a uh, visual magic division, uh, came to me and said, um, what do you know about VRML? And I had not heard of it. And he said, it's this new emerging standard for interactive 3D on the web. And my team has written the 1.0 spec. You might want to include that somehow or another in this project you're working on. And I went, oh my God, yes, tell me more. Because the truth is, Launching silicon graphics into the web market does require you to kind of paint a new version of the what people have in their mind about silicon graphics. They we're known for 3D. We're not known for servers and networking. And all of a sudden, uh, this kind of missing piece snaps in in time for it to be included in our launch video, launch collateral. So the high level story is the web makes the internet visual and it's going to become this incredibly rich, uh, multimedia medium. And it's going to include interactive 3d graphics. And that sets the stage for like, Oh, well, geez, I'm going to need something pretty powerful for that. And so, you know, VRML virtual reality modeling language or virtual reality markup language, right. depending upon the, the time and who you asked, is this funny little thing that ends up being a, a huge battle mm -hmm. in the industry um, long before it really should have been relevant. Um, but it's this thing where you go, if there's going to be a standard set for how 3D is done in a networked way, Silicon Graphics uh, must be the setter of that standard. We must be at the front of that parade and it's this confluence of that kind of strategic thought and the notion that it really helps our marketing story uh, for Webforce that um, we fully embrace it. We end up over the next few years probably putting more money into that um, than anyone else. And it ultimately becomes a battle for control of a, of a standard 
a, a battle that would involve Netscape, Microsoft, Apple, Oracle, Sony, and probably a dozen other big companies. Um, and so lots of exciting things there. Yeah, but I, I also there was also a standard that sort of got hobbled by that sort of cluster that fight over because everyone could was like oh this is clearly the future and it's sort of it would have it 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 could have gone further faster had that not happened but that's another story yeah although it's it's interesting it's like um you know i've spent most of my career in silicon valley dealing with the trade-offs between open versus not open or open versus walled garden and and to be completely candid even these um open things um it's often the case that there's um too many, too many cooks or or that there's one cook and they're using the openness as a bit of a fig leaf ah, yeah, yeah so so in the case of silicon graphics kind of pioneered this i think i mean I, it'd be interesting to look historically but um open gl Right, OpenGL right, right. was created by Silicon Graphics, and it's you know it's survived in in some form or another until today. Um, but OpenGL derives from GL. GL was the graphics library for the geometry engine that gave rise to the company Silicon Graphics. OpenGL was an explicit strategic play to get the whole industry to agree on a single library that would essentially be shepherd it in a very aggressive way by Silicon Graphics with foreknowledge of what was in our hardware pipeline. In other words, it was advantageous to us to have the industry agree to a standard that we were like five chess moves ahead in Silicon. Likewise, Netscape, who was the master of playing the open game against the evil Microsoft, they were playing it fast and loose because they would do these things where it's like uh you know netscape announces new standard for blank forms or something yeah along with 20 other companies all everyone except for microsoft and you know they were great announcements but sometimes you could be on the receiving end of that where it's like we're announcing this tomorrow uh Silicon Graphics, are you on board for that? It's like, wait a minute, you're telling me less than 24 hours and it's a technology that we actually have a stake in, but you're now going to be the ones uh, calling the shots? Hmm. So, um, yeah, the open game's a, an interesting one when it's uh, you know played at, at that level. Um, okay, so you guys... Like you said, you you launch uh, WebForce in January '95. You have a you have a big launch event with um, Netscape and Andreessen and and Roseanne and everybody. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, held on campus. We had a bunch of uh, reporters from those print publications on board. Um, Mark Andreessen spoke. We managed to avoid um, angering them. We did not assert that they used our hardware, and uh, we were off to the races. Um, this is sort of yada yadaing after all that, but um, just, <laughs> just, like what was what was the what was the impact? I don't know if you know sales numbers. It's so many years, things like that. But maybe in a more general way, what do you think that the impact of that product was on what what we would call now Web 1.0 in terms of like some of the first websites and web companies that that came about? Yeah, no, I mean, so 
against uh, all odds in terms of timing and all of that, we met our goal of launching before the end of January and in the process, avoiding my worst nightmare that um, Sun or Apple would beat us to the punch with a web product. Um, we hit the market guns a-blazing, so full-page ads in Wall Street Journal, Wired, Interactive Week, et cetera, et cetera. And so overnight, we were the, we were the game. You got Netscape on the software side and you got us on the hardware side and everyone else is flat-footed. It would take many months for Sun to figure out that this was their biggest market opportunity and to then put all the wood behind one arrow, Scott McNeely phrase. Um, so for the first half of 1995, we were on fire. Uh, magically, uh, our incremental revenue from the Webforce bundles in Q1 of 1995 was over $4 million. And in Q2 of 1995, it was over $10 million. So together, we actually almost exactly hit the $15 million that we said we would uh, commit to. Mm -hmm. um, we, at that point, were the number one OEM partner for uh, Netscape. Um, the, uh, powered by Silicon graphics program that we talked about in the last episode, uh, just started expanding and expanding. We had a little trick too. If you bought a web force system and you're creating a, uh, with the web magic HTML editor, it came bundled with a powered by Silicon graphics thing that was super easy to include on your homepage. Um, <laughs> So that was popping up uh, everywhere. And then um, we knew we were in, a, a, in an evangelical educational sale. So we started something, I think it was the beginning of March 1995 um, in uh, Redwood City. Um, we, well, basically, we cooked up a tour. And uh, I think I, I agreed to do something like 10 uh, locations in the U.S. And previous, uh, and this was an agreement made with the NAFO, uh, North American Field Operations for Silicon Graphics. And they were really good at organizing lead generation events. But lead generation events for Silicon Graphics were largely about getting a very targeted subset of people into a room to evaluate a tens of thousands to hundreds of thousand dollars purchase. So if you got 10 people in, that's awesome. Our very first event in Redwood City probably had a uh, hundred people. Um, by the time the tour got to Denver, uh, I was speaking in front of 600 people. By the time it got to London, it was a thousand people. By the time it got to New Delhi, it was 5,000 people. And um, it was just crazy. And it was this singular uh, presentation that we kept tweaking. And, you know, for a little while, it was I was doing all of them. Then it was um, some of the key guys, people on the team like Chris Hagerman, Rob Reed, Ho Nam. 
and and many others. Um, and it was just it was so interesting because we were basically it was like um, give me that old time religion revival kind of thing. Like the crowd was pumped. We had jokes. We were giving away T-shirts. Um, well, it, it's funny that you use that phrase because I was just going to say like, so that's almost the exact moment in time. Like what, it, it, give me the, give me the months and the year that, 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 that tour happens maybe. This is, um, March, 1995. Okay. So like what through, I'm saying through, is, is what you're six months later through six months later. Okay. Through, so into, into fall of 95. So you're di you're distilling essentially for us, like that's the six month period where the entire global, um, business community realizes the web is a thing gets the religion is what we're saying so like you're, yes. you're using the term a revival tour yeah 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 yes i mean it was some of the most fun uh stuff i've ever done in a business setting like literally um i, I can remember some of the gags and jokes like uh um it, it's a point in time where the number of web servers that were cataloged to exist it was probably it was still five figures or something yeah but it was doubling every oh, okay yeah yeah every, i think it was doubling every month so doubling things are very exciting uh and they make great graphs before i would show the graph i would pause i'd be talking about growth i'd say does anyone in this audience know how many websites there are right now and i'm going to give a t-shirt a web force t-shirt to whoever has the right answer. People be shouting out numbers, very excited. It's just, just giving away a t-shirt, but it felt like, um, you know, Oprah Winfrey giving away a car. Um, another gag I still have, uh, um, uh, there's a point where, uh, trying to make, you know, people have kind of bought into the web is changing everything. Silicon graphics has this incredible solution. And it's like, now, I know there are people out there who will try to suggest to you that you might use a PC as your web server. But let me tell you, that's a mistake. Um, and then it'd be like this um, kind of build up. You talk about how Silicon Graphics is being used in the uh, Orlando uh, interactive television trial where it's, you know, MPEG to the set top over ethernet and da, 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 da. and you're like and you know what no matter uh how you dress it up a pc is still page down a pc and at that point there's this beautiful picture of a chimpanzee dressed in a ballerina outfit and it would just be howls of laughter and we had like three or four of those in the presentation. It was just, it was, it was not your typical hardware sale uh, kind of event. Well, I mean, that's, that's why I'm glad that, that we were preserving this story because like I said, like this is the story of, uh, and, and, and as many of people have said on the show, like there's only so many times in any business person's lifetime where it's like what, what those people are experiencing is like, Oh my God, this, this whole new Vista that's opened up and basically the, the it's endless. <laughs> there's no limits and, to what this can be. And, and it happens so much faster. Like obviously if you were in Silicon Valley in the early seventies um, when the PC 
thing happened, um, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were, you know, breathing in those fumes and figured out how to make a bold play. But it was a bold play that happened on a much slower time frame. The web was like um, going fast and accelerating. Um, I want to. I'm. I'm. I am gonna uh, hit. I want to hit two more things because I'm. I'm gonna accelerate us. Um, All right. But let's I have, do it. Yeah. I have. I have. Uh, I want to hear the story about um, being the the first licensee for Java. And because, again, as you've mentioned before, um, Sun is your uh, sort of arch enemy, nemesis. Yeah. So, um, so tell me about, even in broad strokes, like Java showing up on the scene, why that was important, and then why you guys um, join forces with others to try to, to pimp out Java and, and make it be a force. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. So a couple things. One, um, there really was this very strongly shared view that I think was legitimate, that Microsoft was evil. Um, the Microsoft of that era was essentially a monopoly that was happy to flex its muscle. Um, and so uh, when the web came along and Netscape kind of picked up the uh, David slingshot to bring down the Goliath, um, they could get a lot of cooperation from a lot of different sources. Um, when Sun, our direct rival, came out with Java, um, even though they were a direct rival, I thought, oh my God, here's an here's another shot at at this proposition of creating a post Microsoft world in which there was openness and in interoperability. An unstoppable so, enemy will make even even petty enemies want to want to break bread and, and, and put things behind them. Exactly. So it seemed to me once they got enough traction and by traction, literally, we're talking about um, press coverage slash hype. But it just it seemed to me that there was a good chance there. In fact, I was pretty confident that that Sun would succeed in licensing Java to all of the computer companies. And if you believe that, then you realize, especially as the direct rival, um, you don't want to be the last one making that licensing deal. You want to be the first. And so I was pitching that fairly hard. And now I think in terms of, uh, time frame i should probably check my notes well the i, I do i do know that the announcement like if, if we're if you're talking about like that famous it, press conference it's december of 95 okay that's i was going to check yeah. whether it's 95 or 96 yeah so this is all in that same year um so uh let me frame it then so um one of the things that we did as the company that came out with the first product line that had web in its name at a time when there were major industry events like Internet World, um, we also said, look, there's no industry event with the name Web in it. Why don't we make one? So so uh, our, our team came up with a, um, an event in San Francisco in December called Web Innovation. Uh, keynote speaker Mark Andreessen, killer set of guests, um, but it was a Silicon Graphics production through and through, which was obviously designed to 
make us look really good and sell more hardware. Um, as so that was approaching. Um, and in the months leading up to it, I was trying to get, um, trying to break through whatever log jam there was. And again, I'm still, even though I'm now lead on the, this super hot project, I'm not like at the seat of power in the company. Um, I'm a new guy. And so I'm trying to figure out who's really making these decisions. Um, there's uh, Wei, a guy named Wei Yen, who was the CTO. And he ended up being the guy who was both the blocker to this and the guy who would, um, after a couple of interactions with me, eventually see that this was the most interesting strategic play. Uh, so we get uh, get the blessing to do it probably uh, November of 95, so a year after the blessing to do WebForce. Mm-hmm. Um, and only a month after the Netscape IPO and... Um, yeah uh, uh internet explorer is out so like this is the oh, everything's joined yeah everything's happening yeah so uh so uh so it's i think december 5th 1995 we've pulled off we managed somehow or another uh interestingly enough so uh, sorry i'm jumping around but uh we have a series of negotiations with sun despite the fact that they're a rival they know it's important to them to get all the hardware companies to license their stuff. So it's quite cordial. Um, we talk about how we can make this a bigger deal. So um, we want them to endorse VRML as we are endorsing Java and getting an, an OEM licensing deal for it. Um, Netscape gets into the picture. Um, uh, oh, I'm jumping around. Oh, so uh, anyway. December 5th, 1995, we end up with this press conference that 24 hours before it, we haven't actually signed any papers. Mm. (laughs) So the stress levels through the roof, it ends up being this incredible three way plus one in which, um, Netscape, Sun and Silicon Graphics are mutually endorsing each other's technologies. Um, the triumvirate is triumvirate is uh, Java, VRML, and JavaScript. Uh, JavaScript, yeah. which uh, had been going under a different name up until that. And I think uh, Netscape wanted to just make it all seem like each of the three were equals and doing really cool stuff. JavaScript of all of these things has probably had the longest uh, run of success. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but it literally got called JavaScript in a, the strangest of things. I think it had been priorly known as Mocha. Um, and we had actually, we had made a run. Uh, we had a very uh, a scripting language similar to JavaScript um, that was used in the um, interactive television trials in Orlando, and we were trying to get Netscape to adopt that, and we failed at that. But anyway, as that was all coming together, we said, well, shit, we should also – this is the time to go from this is primarily a hardware play to actually having a real software play where Silicon Graphics has software not just for our hardware but for the world – and so all the authoring tools 
we would say now all of a sudden we're going to be on everything. We're going to have VRML authoring tools for Windows as well as IRIX. Um, and so we created, so this, all of a sudden this press event uh, that came together in a very short period of time has this three-way announcement plus the announcement by Silicon Graphics of a new division called Cosmos Software that will be making authoring tools and browser plugins for uh, universal open content, by which we mean HTML, VRML, Java, and JavaScript. It was a rather crazy time. I didn't get a lot of sleep at that moment. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just uh, give a little bit of context here for things that people have, have heard on the show before. So there's that famous, um, what is known as the, the Pearl Harbor Day speech that Bill Gates gave in 95 on December 7th. So um, yes. In, yes. In, in history, in the history of how this works, what you just described is, you know, and, and there's episodes, please go back if you haven't heard them, about how Bill Gates getting religion about the Internet and things like this. But imagine this. What has just been described is essentially the entire industry lining up against Microsoft and saying, sort of Gandalf style, you shall not pass. Uh, we're not going to let you control the Internet. And so that famous Pearl Harbor Day speech happens two days later. We're going to we're going to what was his phrase? Uh, hardcore about the Internet. I, I don't know if that was the time you said hardcore, but whatever. Yeah. Um, so, right. The, the, the wars against uh, Microsoft in the 90s are joined uh with with that event you just described and the and the pearl harbor day speech yeah so if it's a game of thrones episode it's like oh my god sun and silicon graphics have done a cross licensing deal what right, you guys you guys did a you guys did a, a red wedding on him yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> love it yes exactly that was our red wedding moment um, one more, one more, um, because there's also um, you, you, uh, 98, um, you got you are a part of a, a thing with a whole bunch of other people like Adobe, Macromedia, Apple, and everybody um, oh, yeah. to, to, to block Microsoft on something else. Just tell us tell us about that real quick, because even by 98, you know, Netflix, Netscape is is in decline, is bought by AOL uh, and, and, and there the antitrust things happening. So what was what was that about? Yeah, yeah. So, the you know, the. the this period of time has this long slog of a battle between uh, open standards on the internet and um, proprietary things out of Microsoft. And even though we, in general, we felt like we were, we were actually winning um, in 98, uh, Microsoft took another swing at bat with um thing they called at the time chrome uh and it was right. like the kitchen sink of media related um apis uh following on and, from and not DirectX. not google chrome by the way in case exactly. right yes now. different chrome um and and it was so it was fascinating and chilling um because um, this is prior to the government um, takedown over antitrust stuff. This is this is Microsoft that kind of peak antitrust problem, in which they would say, you know, we've got this new thing and it covers interactive um, 3D uh, video, um, 
motion graphics in 2D. It does everything. There were there were several times when Microsoft basically attempted to be like, well, forget the open standards. We'll create our own standards that'll be better, and then just play with our standards. They're better. Yes. Yeah. And but they wouldn't say it quite that nicely because as soon as you would say, um, uh, you know, I'm not really. We are not really up for that. In fact, we're much more interested in the open standards of the web. And they would say, well, you understand that we we are Microsoft. And uh, you can either come on for the ride uh, or we can crush you. And they literally would say things like that in phone calls and meetings. In fact, I remember at one point, I forget exactly what the event was, but while this question of whether we might possibly support Chrome was in the air, I went into a big Microsoft booth at, it was probably Internet World, I don't know what it was, but um, I got walked into a private room and got basically intimidated by someone, kind of mob style, and it was fascinating. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, I guess I was such a believer in the power of the Silicon Valley potential coalition of friends and frenemies and enemies, uh, that I said, well, this Chrome thing is a piece of shit. We should just, we should just all work together and block it. And so we ended up reaching out to, um, representatives from, Apple, uh, Kai-Fu Lee from Apple was there. Um, we got the two co-founders of Adobe. We got someone from Macromedia. It might have even been, I don't know who it's from Macromedia. Uh, someone from Sun, someone from Netscape. Eric Schmidt from Sun, I bet, right? Oh, that's right. Eric Schmidt from Sun. Uh, maybe Martin Haberly from... Netscape. Anyway, it was a who's who of of powerful, deeply technical, very strategic players from a bunch of companies that have never had a private meeting together. And we talked through what is Microsoft asking of you? What are they threatening to you? What is your thought on response? And we basically um, agreed to um, have the same FU response uh, to Microsoft around this particular topic. You know, that's funny because I feel like that used to happen a lot more. Like when I had uh, Rod Canyon on to talk about um, uh, Compaq and how they did battle with IBM when IBM essentially tried to create a standard and uh, the industry got together and was like, no, you're not going to lock this down. <laughs> We're happy with the clone. Like I almost, I bring that up because I feel like, um, that should happen more today, but it's almost that now more today, all of the players are the ones that get together in these consortiums. Like you would be more likely to see Google, Facebook, uh, whoever get together in some group to block something from the bottom up that was threatening mm -hmm. to them versus someone, uh, you know, punching up and creating a, a fellowship of the ring <laughs> to fight somebody <laughs> else. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I think the dynamic today is quite a bit different from the dynamic then. Back then, there was the sense that um, humanity, as well as 
all of us good guys in the valley, were were being held back and threatened by a duopoly in the form of Microsoft and Intel. Um, these days, there's this very interesting, um, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. These four juggernauts are killing it, and they're behaving simultaneously like big companies and aggressive, uh, hungry startups. Well, and you know, not to give any ideas to any uh, antitrust lawyers out there, but like that is the definition of you have an oligopoly. Because even if you have a new up-and-comer like an Uber, it's better for them to go along and get along. And it's almost better for the incumbents to go along and get along with the, the new up-and-comers because if you bring them into the fold, then they're not, you know. that You know what? That's a sidetrack. <laughs> and, and we, we've already, we're already uh, already at the hour mark. So here's what I want to do. But hey, hey, but you know what? Yeah. We covered a lot of ground. I'm surprised <laughs> at how well we did. Well, let's do this. I want to I want to give credit to um, other things in your career, but not in as much detail, sadly. Um, but so <laughs> tell tell me, you leave um, SGI in, in June of '98. Um, is it because at that point the web is happening and it's like you know I'm gonna, I want to get in on this uh, this party that's happening? Well, I'd, I'd say this. No, like uh, I was uh, I. Back then, if you cut me, I would bleed purple. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is what we talked about at Silicon Graphics. Um, but SGI, so with Cosmos Software, which was a really exciting project, in hindsight, we were trying to launch a rocket from a sinking ship. SGI had peaked in 94 slash 95. By 98, they were, they were at a point where they – they were so uh, getting eaten from below that they needed to um, get rid of non-strategic businesses and they could conceive of a cross-platform software web business as non-strategic. So we ended up selling it to a company called Platinum Software and I was on to my next thing. And uh, so uh, end up uh, one of the, the very first hire I made for the Webforce team was a guy named Chris Hagerman. He would eventually leave and make uh, something called Big Book, which was like a mm -hmm. precursor to Yelp in the form of a online yellow pages. Actual yellow, actual online yellow pages. Yeah. 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 And uh, he and I got together and uh, created a, a company called Affinia, which yeah. was a really early mover. Yeah, can I? Because there's a couple things just in my because I was not exactly familiar with Affinia, but um, this is like '98 to 2000 era, and so you, there's e-commerce things here. Like you've got partnerships with Amazon, but also pioneering in, in cost per click ads as well. Yeah, yeah. So the the um, the big bold bet of Affinia was that the future of the web would be rich with e-commerce. Um, and rich with content, but the, these two worlds were so different that there'd be a great play for a man in the middle. Um, the original instantiation of the idea was we're going to crawl and index everything available for sale on the web and make that available to content sites for them to easily have a storefront of goods that were thematically related to the content they had, therefore allowing even a small site that was about fly fishing to get their beak wet with e-commerce without having to deal with um, 
transaction security fulfillment and all of that so like stuff. A, a combination of affiliate marketing but like you're also scraping the uh, the products that you can yeah. put together okay yeah and, and at the time i think you know we were scraping but not because we wanted to and we were actually trying to get them to give us xml and um, you know, but it's like super early days of e-retail. A lot of people have questions about that. There's questions about advertising. Um, we ended up realizing, um, uh, you know, we're our best deal at that moment when we're small is the shitty affiliate marketing deal as opposed to something better, mm-hmm. um, where we get paid per, uh, sale, um, and the, and the content Folks want to get paid per view. We come up with this. It seems like a smart um, uh, compromise, which is what if we uh, pay you on cost per click and we take on a little bit of the risk? Um, it was heady times, uh, you know. And and the truth is that any of the startups that are web related startups in the 98, 99, 2000, 2001 timeframe. So much of it is around um, where were you in your fundraising cycle relative to the big crater when the meteorite hits in March of 2000. Uh, My wife and I are both Silicon Valley startup people. We were both in relatively early stage startups and and we got married and we we're on honeymoon in March of 2000 and boom, boom poor, it hits. poor timing. I mean, good for you. God bless. Yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, I happened to check and I'm like, oh man, my mood has just gone way down. Um, uh, Affinia was about to need to raise funds and uh, the company my wife was at had just raised 50 million. So they survived the great die off and we did not. Um and who knows uh, how much of you know what we were doing uh, was a great idea too early and got hit by this dysfunction or not? Who knows? Can I? Uh, I didn't intend to do this, but can I ask you for a little bit of color? Uh, I I always fish for this, and I've never yeah. really gotten satisfactory stories that I know are there if people would just be honest. But like, just <laughs> describe the feeling of um, the 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 meteor hitting. Um, some people have, have said that, uh, you know, we really thought that it was a fad. It was over. Other people say, you know, we're true believers. We just, we knew that people had gotten too greedy. What is your, what is your memory of like that year to 18 months? Because again, uh, the NASDAQ goes down, the bubble bursts, but everyone kind of, it really is dead by the time nine 11 happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I've, yeah, describe that. I have vivid memories that I've never shared before. So first time ever, um, you know, I, as you can tell from how I've talked about the stories I've told, I was and am a true believer. Like this was the biggest thing happening. The meteor hitting of the NASDAQ crash of March of 2000 is completely jarring. Even though we've seen signs of stupid behavior, it's just, it just, we, it was jarring. Um, uh, in hindsight, like it took me a long time to figure out what, like what happened was less about Silicon Valley and much more about wall street. Wall street dropped the quality bar for, for making an IPO happen. And they kept dropping it in the same way that they, 
dropped the quality bar on Houses, mortgages, yeah. right? So, I mean, essentially, financial bubbles appear seem to happen when financial people change the rules of the game to let crappier stuff through. But when Wall Street lets crappier startups through, venture capitalists do what is rational, if not prudent, and they fund things based on that. Um, at the same time, we all know the world is changing. And and my, one of my funny regrets is I started buying internet stocks in 1998, and I held a portfolio that had a 10x rise between 98 and 2000. And you, That's said, not por you said portfolio, not just you had one. You, just, you didn't just get into eBay and, and did well. You're saying a whole no. portfolio, yeah. I had, uh, yeah, I had more than a dozen stocks that were the ones that you would think would be long-term winners. Um, and, uh, you know, I felt like a genius, but everyone around me felt like a genius. It was that period of time where you could get a, you could get venture capital 10 X returns in the, in the E-Trade, uh, you know, date window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, of course that could have been a warning sign and there are other warning signs. I, you know, I've still haven't written the post on that, which is, you know, things like, um, you know, for Affinia, it's 1998. The bubble is clearly inflating and signs, of, signs that you're in a bubble. Um, you, the, the landlord for a fairly shitty, uh, office space, uh, near Moffitt, uh, doesn't, uh, just want cash. Um, he wants equity and he wants to hear your pitch and he doesn't want to hear your pitch unless you're funded by Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins and your the PR firms, their plate is full and they don't want to talk to you unless you're funded by Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins and they want equity, not cash. So and the lawyers and everybody's there. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you so know, obviously it was getting very frothy, but when, when the correction hits in March of 2000, none of us know if it's a short term correction a multi-year correction or like, oh shit, you know, like we bet our career on something and, you know, it's never, ever going to be good again. I was just actually this weekend reading a, um, a first person account that I had never read before that was like, you know, you could, you could travel down the highway to Silicon Valley from San Francisco again. And there was no traffic. <laughs> like, yeah. Something as tangible as that. Like, People just up and left. So, yeah, traffic was clearly one of the things that you could measure all of it by. It got really, really weird in 1999. Um, in 1999, uh, you'll like the story. The, um, uh, I ended up hiring a guy into Affinia, uh, Dave Loudon, really great guy, um, but uh, he had been at a, a startup called when.com, which is like the first. Right. I've had uh, one of the founders of when on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cal uh, so calendar a, startup. Yeah. Yeah. It was a web 1.0 calendar startup that got acquired, I think, by AOL. And, one of the portals. Uh, yeah, yeah. And at, and at some point, um, like five of the people on that team decide 
I guess their handcuffs are off, whatever. They're ready to move on. And 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 they put their themselves out onto the hiring market together and craziness ensues like uh, <laughs> I interviewed two of the five guys and they're like, you can't believe what's happening to us right now. We're, we are getting job offers that are incredible from companies we haven't even met with. I, yeah. And, um, Right, because they had they had successfully already had an exit. <laughs> so, yes. So, yeah. And, 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 and also, and, and uh, you know, I, I should preface this by saying I have done business development as part of my set of skills in the Valley, and I appreciate great business development. It's a hugely valuable thing when done in a strategic way. That said, there's an awful lot of folks who – come from all over the country or all over the world. They hit Silicon Valley. They've got no experience. They've got no unique skill. And they're like, I'm here for my business development job. And it's like, that's another sign of the warning. It's like people coming out of nowhere that like just show up and they're like, they think it's time for me to get my big pay and my, my, my gold ticket. And that's not the way to go. No. <laughs> um, all right. So, but, you know, but ever since though, you know, what's interesting is, uh, I've now battled for years. Like, um, I think from 2005 or 2006 onward, like there's all these much younger people who didn't live through the actual bubble and it's collapse saying, Oh, Silicon Valley's in a bubble. It's the bubble now. Like every year it's like, no, let's like, we are not in a bubble. I, it's funny, I've come around on that because I used to complain about how every time, you know, anybody, you know, do you remember when, when um, uh, Facebook was valued at $100 uh, billion and people thought that that was insane when, when Yuri Milner or whatever uh, came in at, at that valuation? <clears throat> and I that used to bother me all the time that it's like, no, it, we've seen a bubble, this is not the bubble or whatever. Um, and I felt like that, that Silicon Valley had PTSD from the bubble. Yes. yes. I've come full circle on that where I think either it's generational turnover or it's too much success at this point. I mean, you know, what, uh, eight of the top 10 market cap companies in the world are all tech companies now. I think now we've swung too far in the other direction. No one has a memory that this can go south. Right. Um, okay. There endeth the rant. All right, listen, John. I want to. I'm going to stipulate you. You clearly did not uh, lose your faith in technology because uh, <laughs> positions at Plaxo. You've been at Comcast. You've been you. You've been a co-founder, MediaSpike, uh, VR companies. Um, let's let's do this as a good way to to bring this to a landing. First of all, uh, what are you doing today? Ah, so uh, I am uh, after my VR company did not as achieve escape velocity um, rather than potentially getting a job at one of the big four. I'm still I love the startup game. So uh, so I've been advising a number of startups and I'm consulting with one right now at 30 hours a week that's doing some interesting stuff at the intersection of. AI, uh, marketing and social. 
I uh, I'm gonna inter- I, I I didn't want to do. I'm gonna interject one question. Yeah. That might get a long answer, but. <laughs> uh, all right, and forgive me because maybe it's an unfair question. I'm old enough to have heard that VR is right around the corner. My entire professional adult life, going back to Jaron and and all of the startups in the mid '90s, and um, is is VR coming, or? Hmm. I'm trying to think of how I really want to phrase this. I I understand it's a complex question. All right, all right. You know what? I got a, I got I got a different way to ask this question. All right. When video games took off with Atari and Pong, it didn't need any evangelizing and laying the groundwork and waiting for the uh, the technology to catch up. Fucking Pong was a goddamn dot, and like they they hacked the CRT monitor to even make it happen. Like, what is the thing that is holding back VR from being that thing? Because people do have experiences with VR where it kind of blows their mind, but then that's not like uh, video games just happened. Uh, social just happened. Once you, you you got connected to your friends, you just did it. You didn't have to be told. What is, what is the problem with VR going mainstream? All right. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm on the short list of people who's been literally burned by wrong market timing around VR type mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. twice. Yeah. Hit me with it. Hit me with it. Se- separated by more than 20 years. So, my God, I hope 20 years from now I'm not talking about a third time. Um, true VR is both hard and a long-term quest. Um, I also say AR is obviously a big topic as well. Sure, sure. Let's, we'll, we'll, we can group them together for the purposes yeah. of this. Yeah. Well, well, no. What I'd say is this: um, right now they get they get smushed together. Mm-hmm. But but as hard as VR is, the moment at which it truly becomes mainstream. Um, true mainstream AR will be at least five years further out than that because it's a much harder problem. True, true mainstream AR will come later than mainstream VR. And, 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 and here's where I'm going. VR is not something you do in public. It's something you do in a safe space where it's actually okay for you to Ignore the outside world and immerse yourself in a synthetic reality. That synthetic reality needs to be believable enough above a threshold at the barest minimum where it doesn't make you sick. But to be a mainstream thing, it needs to really delight you. It needs to make you feel like you're in the best dream you've ever had and you have agency. And to have agency, you need to be able to not only see the things that are happening, but you need to feel like you can move around and that you've got uh, hands and, 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 and so it, it kind of puts you down this pathway where you eventually like in my VR startup that was at the intersection of um, music and music visualization. And we were doing virtual rave type stuff. The best experiences were always with a product on my body called a sub pack, which was a wearable subwoofer. Like 
the amount of hardware requirements to make the whole, like, you know, we grew up with visions of the holodeck. Well, to be in the holodeck, you've got to be able to climb a mountain, which means you need an adaptive terrain thing. And so uh, where threshold occurs, I don't know, maybe it's two, three, four years out and we won't be done. We've got another 10, 15 years of hardware augmentation to make the full VR experience truly believable to be in this other world. AR is the exact opposite. We need a pair of glasses that no one looks at and yells out, hey, glass hole, as those of us who were in the Explorer program for Google Glass experience. Right, yeah. So it needs to be completely invisible. It needs to not get in the way of eye contact. And it needs to be not like some magic leap, uh, freaking huge battery pack. And like, like they're years away from con consumer ready product. Um, that's my rant. Yeah, I, we, right. I, maybe in the end, I still, I, I just blame Snow Crash. If that, <laughs> if that fucking book hadn't been published, so much money, so many stars. People have been trying to chase Snow Crash for dude, 25 years now. Dude, I was reading that book when I got the offer to become a contractor at Silicon Graphics. <laughs> and I went, oh my God. I kind of started. This is this is another total aside that people could get annoyed at if they want. I started rereading that uh, sometime this year, and it kind of doesn't hold up. And I'll tell you why. <laughs> I mean, there's obviously culture moves on and things move on. So there's certain cultural things like anything that you you know watch any fucking movie from the '70s and you might be appalled. Watch Bad News Bears and and cringe at the racism and sexism. <laughs> but exactly. um, the thing that that kind of felt stale well it didn't feel stale because i remembered it i remembered the sense of it what i remembered rereading snow crash was like that sort of tarantino slash nirvana energy of like fuck the man and 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 you know like it was just sort of that frenetic like everything on speed that like pulp fiction had that like that yep. that sort of period in the early 90s had and it felt uh, maybe because I was younger then, it felt naive and youthfully, <laughs> youthfully dumb. Um, still a great book, but like that's the thing that struck me about it was like, oh yeah, that is so of its time. That's the weird thing. Some things, um, are eternal, and then some things are very of their time. And I feel like that that book was anyway. That's my aside. Well, I have to say though, hats off to Neil Stevenson. Oh, sure. I mean, it's a really great book. And there's things he does with language. Yes. yes. I, I so, uh, I'm inspired by like, just like a, the turn of phrase burb clave. Yeah. 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 And the stuff that he put around that, like yeah. he made such a believable dystopian suburban America that had wrought it in such a well, and that's always the problem with um, with sci-fi, because then once it goes 20 years later, 30 years later, you're like, well, it didn't turn out quite this way. Like the thing like, you know, now we are kind of seeing um, the corporations running everything, but it's not like the mafia is running pizza delivery. And things like <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so anyone listening, if, if you want a taste of literally what 
<laughs> but guys like us and like the people starting Netscape and all that stuff, the, what was filling their brains and 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 inspiring them? Uh, read Snow Crash. It's a very it's a very uh, of its time thing. Okay, there you go. I think that ties it in a bow. I have one more to tie it in a bow, and this one right. you can answer simply. Um, what are you excited about? And it could be technology. Um, who was it? Uh, uh, oh, Malik said he was into photography and told us all about how he, he got obsessed with photography. At this point, either in your life, either this year, either this week, what excites you? Hmm. Well, I, I continue to be uh, excited by technology, although I'll, you know, full confession, I, I, I've gone from being worried about it not moving fast enough to being a bit worried about what it will all turn out in the next, I think, you know, the, the, the next 20 years, we do see this exponential curve delivering us into places that, um, that do start to feel a lot like science fiction and where some of the smartest people around Silicon Valley have differing views about whether it will result in an abundant, uh, utopia or a place where so much of society has lost meaningful uh, work because of AI and robotics. I think that's kind of that's the area where it is the most exciting. It's kind of interesting to me uh, as I've been trying to figure out what's next and talking to startups. But I also looked around, you know, where do I have the deepest set of network connections in the valley? And it turns out the company where I know the most people is NVIDIA. And they're right at the center of that um, yeah. compute-driven AI revolution. And and so I'd say AI is the thing. It's the thing that both scares and excites me the most. Um, and uh, so there. Yeah, that does put it in a bow because, you know, uh, as we said at the beginning of the previous episode, I think the, the best analogy today in this moment to Silicon Graphics is, is NVIDIA. Um. So, listen, you have been, John, more generous uh, with your time and your contributions than uh, maybe your top three in terms of contributing to this podcast and this project. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show again and sharing all of that and uh, being willing to go on tangents and rambles and and rants and, and just thanks. Hey, it's been a great pleasure, and I wanted to thank you because I think um, that – the, the this period of time that you have helped chronicle through this podcast is super important and i'm really grateful that you've been recording this and uh, uh please keep doing it it's really really important thank you if you like what you've heard on this episode please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks and please buy the book that was based on this podcast How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened.